Well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Dr. Michael Haydick to discuss the multitude of technologies that come from our information directorate and the magic of tomato pie. In three, two, one. Dr. Haydick, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. And this is a great opportunity. Yeah. And you're coming to us from Rome, New York. We hear it's a really good place to get some Italian food. Would you agree? (laughs) Absolutely. It's a great lead off question. I'm very passionate about where I live uh, here in the Mohawk Valley in upstate New York, right around the the central point of New York State. And exactly, yeah, the um, Utica, Rome area or Mohawk Valley, as we're often referred to, has so many great uh, restaurants and Italian food is definitely our thing here. So, um, yeah, if anyone's ever in town, look me up. Some of the some of the specialties include uh, Riggies, Utica Riggies, and Utica Greens, as well as uh, tomato pie. Wow, that's not something I've had. So when I get up there, tomato pie, I'm gonna try it. <laughs> yeah, see, it's not just regular Italian food. We have, we have our own kind of spin on it up here. So yeah, it makes for some awesome awesome eating. Yeah, never heard it called that. So. But, I mean, besides, you know, great Italian food, you guys in Rome, you're really at our information director. You're a powerhouse of, of, of technology and innovation. What goes on um, at your site? So in Rome, we're the information directorate. So one of the nine technology directorates from across AFRL. And being the information directorate, as our name implies, we do all things related to information technology with a focus on what we call C4I and cyber. So the C4I, command, control, computers, communications, DI, intelligence, and of course, cyber. And we call out cyber separately, uh, with the reason being that we have a long and proud heritage in cyber technologies and really being at the forefront of developing cyber and getting into it real early. So. It's uh, you know certainly something we're very proud of, and you know across those those areas we meet so many customer needs, and one of the things we're so proud of is the fact you mentioned innovation. So we go all the way in terms of pipelines, so very early technologies such as quantum technology that's something very near and dear to my heart. Things like neuromorphic computing, machine learning, AI, and then we take that all the way up into building capabilities. So working from six one to six two to six three the different areas of research or the different codes, as we call it in the Air Force, and then really getting product out to the field. And that's that's another thing that we're so proud of in Rome. It's not just the innovation and the basic foundational technologies that we work on, but really you know, being able to deliver and transition and support our warfighter just makes our job and what we do in Rome so special. In terms of you know, our people and being able to do that, we have about 800 government folks on site, 400 of which are scientists, engineers, and an amazing support staff of about another 400 people or so, uh, and then about 400 on-site contractors. So notionally, we have about 1,200 people at what we call the Rome Research Site supporting our B4I and cyber work that we do. A lot going on there, because you, you mentioned everywhere from six one, six, two, six, three. So from the basic research to the applied research to the advanced technology development, all happening at your site to, to translate a little bit for our listeners, a lot going on. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, 
I think one of the things you know to mention too, I talked about the um, the support to the warfighter. We also um, partner with a lot of folks out there, and because of that, we receive a lot of outside customer funding. So we, on average, we average bringing in about 1.8 billion dollars each year. Uh, you know, fluctuates a little bit, but that's something that's steadily grown throughout the years. And again, I think it's a tribute to our workforce and the quality work that they produce. You know, year in and year out. And then being able to continue to bring that innovation in the R&D touch to it. And as you said, going from the basic to the um, advanced research is what we're all about in Rome. So with that in mind, you have a very unique position here at Rome. You are the uh, deputy director of the information directorate. And we kind of wanted to go into uh, what that means, because you get to see a lot of this, you know, really cool technology, this innovation, and these people work together. So uh, can you kind of describe your position and what you do? Sure. So I started as the deputy director uh, not too long ago, uh, January 2019. And it was a newly created position when we went through a bit of a reorganization so Colonel Lawrence, Colonel Tim Lawrence, is our director and the commander of the Rome Research Site. Uh, he came in a little bit before then, and then we added this position of a um, civilian uh, deputy director. So I was fortunate enough to uh, start in that position, and you know, I worked very closely with Colonel Lawrence in our front office and really you know, overseeing what we do, both on the technical side as well as on the support side. And one, one of the things... To, to really hit upon too is being where we are in Rome, New York. We're at the site of the former Griffiths Air Force Base. So the base uh, was closed and realigned back in. So we don't have that base support that other installations are able to provide for, for the labs and for their tenants. So we have to have our own support services there. And it's really been an amazing journey, I'll say, as this all unfolded throughout the year. So we have a tremendous contracting staff on site, finance staff on site, uh, site support, and our legal staff. So put all those together, you know, it makes for a great team in Rome. And that's really the only reason that we're able to, to execute so much funding and deliver technologies for the Air Force, for the warfighter, and for our other customers. Well, that's amazing. Like you mentioned to see really the growth from uh, over like 25 years of helping really uh, make a more robust standalone site. Uh, you mentioned that you've had the chance to really see a lot of this growth yourself and kind of see the process. Yeah. So I actually started out back as an intern in 1990, working in the, what was the Photonic Center at the time. Uh, really enjoyed um what I was doing there, uh, and then um, came on full-time in 1991, came in through what was called the Palace Night Program at the time, which was an Air Force educational program for civilians, to uh, really look to ultimately increase the number of PhDs within the lab and within the Air Force. So I was fortunate enough to do that. I uh, ended up going on and getting a master's degree at University of Virginia, and then a PhD at Cornell University in 1997. And did a lot of, um, you know, you talk about the growth. I, I started out as doing a lot of in-house basic research, kind of, that, you know, foundational work. I did a lot of work in um, photonics technologies, electro-optics, you know, how you could really apply uh, the use of light and electronics to solving a lot of the Air Force's problems in um really moving information around and being able to process that information. So 16 years or so working bench level scientists, had a great time doing that. 
Uh, and then, you know, moved on to some different parts uh, uh, within the lab and being able to see that. I, I ended up moving into the um, information directorate in 2007. I became branch chief of the Emerging Computing Technology branch, which was a lot of fun. Really a different sort of position for me. So not only did I become a supervisor, but worked on some newer technologies that, you know, really wasn't familiar with at the time. And that's where we were able to really start looking at, you know, how you can go beyond traditional processing technologies that we're also familiar with, say, in our cell phones or, or laptops or tablets, and going after, you know, what's what are the next great technologies out there? So that's where we were able to start some programs and, and really getting on what I call the ground floor of things like quantum computing, neuromorphic computing, um, nano computing, being able to apply nanotechnologies to, um, you know, enhance processing capabilities that are out there. Did that for about four years or so, and then really was able to move up and take over the division that that branch was in and became the um, division chief of our computing and um, communications division at the lab. So, you know, I've kind of kind of seen it all over nearly 30 years now. It's been certainly a great, great run. Um, so proud to be not only part of AFRL, but to be part of the Air Force and, and seeing what we do every day. It's, it's so special. And what an incredible perspective to have. Like you said, you've seen uh, so many different aspects of this, uh, not only the information directorate, but just around Robe itself. And to be able to understand anything from, you know, the culture, the food, to the lab, and the work that goes on with the brilliant minds who live there. I mean, there has to be so many cool things and cool stories that you have uh, for the projects you've worked on. And one that really pops out that you mentioned. Um, so for some of our viewers who may not be as familiar, uh, you mentioned that you started off working with the Photonics Center um, and a lot of uh, different photonics-related research. Um, can you kind of go into what you did there exactly and why that is so important for our lab to kind of invest in and discover? When I was going through my undergraduate, I really took a liking to um, fiber optics and lasers and, you know, really just seeing what could be done with it. And that was pretty really rapid growing field at the time in the late 80s, early 90s. And I had a you know unique opportunity to uh, join the Photonic Center which was part of Rome Laboratory at the time before the Air Force reorganized into AFRL. In that center, we, at our peak, we had about 50 or so people working on um, different technologies and how you could apply uh, photonics. And as I mentioned, the use of light and fiber optics, lasers, and electronics to, to be able to um, move and process information. So, you know, when you think about the Air Force and all our systems that are out there, our planes, our data that we need to move and really turn you know, all that data that comes in from sensors and turn it into information and then ultimately turn it into knowledge that we can provide back to the warfighter and really you know, make use of. How do we do that? And photonics is just a great way to do it because you know not only say the, the speed of light, but the bandwidth that it could provide. And we were, at that time, I was so fortunate to be really in at the early time of when it was just starting to take off and so many advances were, were happening. And in fact, you know, now I take things for granted that there are so many things out there that use photonics in them that, you know, people just don't even really know are out there because it's just so ubiquitous. And, and specifically worked on a lot of the technologies that move, say, signals that come in from sensors, signals that move in from radars that are, you know, naturally kind of occurring in the analog world. And it gets very tricky to then be able to move that information, preserve that information with a high amount of fidelity. So that was what we worked on. And those were called um, 
RF photonics or radio frequency photonics. Very challenging, demanding type problem. We, we always joked that it was so much easier if we worked in the digital world, you know, the, the world of ones and zeros was kind of what we do in the information director right now, but being able to transport and uh, move that information around, process it, is so much easier in the digital world than in the um, RF or analog world. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, I'm absorbing all this, and I don't even know what are what are some of those things that photonics and light plays into in my world that I'm probably not understanding. You mentioned those everyday things that we don't even think about. Sure, I'd love to. So back when we were working on photonics in the uh, '90s, early 1990s, uh, we you know we used to imagine, all right, what would the world look like if this technology became a reality? And it was funny back then we used to think about things like high definition TV and streaming videos and, you know, even what the internet could be. And you think back to that time, that was really when the internet was just starting, just getting kicked off the ground. You had things like Netscape and Mosaic as, as your web browsers and things that, you know, obviously don't even exist nowadays. But, you know, things were very slow. And I remember the days of dial-up modems. So, you know, we really saw that, wow, you know, if, if any of photonics were ever to become mainstream, that it could really change the world. And in fact, you know, it has. When you think about where the internet is today, all the things that happen on the internet. And in fact, um, you know, back then we talked about being able to stream videos. And I remember back in the 90s, like, people were like, well, why when I can just go down to Blockbuster and get a VHS tape? Why would I want to stream something? <laughs> Hence, nowadays, you know, things like Netflix and all the other streaming services that are out there, uh, all that is powered by a backbone of, of fiber optics and being able to move signals uh, using light and lasers in, in those fiber optics. And, you know, because of that, be providing that backbone, you know, just uh, being on, you know, we're so familiar with these days, Zoom calls and WebEx calls and Google Hangouts, all, all those things are powered by photons, really being able to, you know, use light uh, to move information really fast and create that bandwidth. And so it looks, you know, real time. And also, you know, things we take for granted too is being on Facebook or Twitter and, you know, whatever you put up in post, you can always go back to, right? I say things, things never go away on the internet. Well, that's because they're stored somewhere in, in data centers. And there's a lot of photonics technology that occurs there, not only in being able to move things between the different servers and storage units, but you think of, you know, the different technologies that are used for storage all in one way or another really do relate back to um, the use of photons. So, so many ways that it's gone mainstream that we kind of imagined, but uh, really didn't know how, how pervasive, impactful, and really ubiquitous it would become. I mean, sure, it sounds like even the basis of you and I and Kenneth talking right now is, is photonics. Yeah, there's, there's so much of it. And I, I, What's great to see, too, you know, you have that fiber optic backbone and being able to move so much data and, and the bandwidth it provides. But, you know, there's, there's other things that are still being worked on that, that are out there. Things, um, self-driving cars and all the sensors that are going to be needed in those things like LADAR systems. Those all use light and integrated photonics. So the technology is still advancing. It's still being pushed. Um, in fact, there's a DOD manufacturing institute, one of the several that are out there was actually started about five years ago. It's the AIM Photonics Center, and it's uh, actually located right here in upstate New York, kind of split between Rochester, New York, and Albany, New York, run by SUNY um, Polytechnic Institution. And it, it's just an amazing facility that is worldwide impact and really pushing the development of 
photonics and be able to integrate them and make them practical so that they can be used in things like you know, cars and cell phones and, and it's really getting down to not only having a high bandwidth or, or that large system throughput but being able to make them uh, low power and compact and just merging them with electronics and the CMOS technologies that's out there and that's just going to continue to revolutionize really the world so that's that's something that we're a part of in Rome, AFRL, in fact, is the leader in that. Our partners and the um, sensors director actually uh, are, are the DOD lead for that. So they, they've just done an amazing job with that program. And we're so uh, excited to be a part of it and just see where this uh, continues to go and see how AIM Photonics continues to, to flourish. Oh, as I say, I just, I just learned a lot. <laughs> And I think that's really amazing, too, to kind of put that in perspective, to think about working on photonics with the evolution of the uh, commercial Internet and a lot of cool technologies we now, like you mentioned, get to enjoy today. Like, it's incredible to think just how much that uh, research area has impacted us. And um, speaking along the same lines, there's another um, area you mentioned while kind of talking about your career, uh, talking a lot about different um, computing types uh, from like quantum to nano to neuromorphic. It sounds like there's quite a lot. Can you kind of break into what computing you work on there at Rome and kind of how that impacts uh, even us out here in the normal world? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to uh, love to talk about that. Yeah, definitely a, a, an area I'm very passionate about is, is advanced computing and the different technologies that are out there. So the reason being people wonder, well, why, you know, why would you work on different computing technologies? You know, the power you have in our cell phones today just keeps advancing. You know, um, there's all different stories out there. You know, how much powerful, more powerful a cell phone is today, even than, you know, the most powerful mainframe computers were and desktop computers just many, you know, just a few years ago, I should say. So the computing technology, the electronics continue to push, but we're really hitting hitting a bottleneck there and really hitting what's called the end of Moore's law, where you just can't continue to push on, uh, you know, making transistors smaller and increasing the processing power of computer chips. So, you know, we leaned very forward on this in the Air Force, knowing how important processing is to us and started looking at, you know, these different technologies that could really continue to enhance computing power and, you know, not necessarily replace it, but maybe just enhance it and work with it and be able to push it along and really get to what the Air Force needs. And what we really need by that, if you look at a high level picture and why we do you know, advanced computing in Rome, it's really to um, process at the edge. And really we've kind of evolved that into um, AI at the edge or artificial intelligence at the edge. And what I mean by that is uh, you have your signals coming in through your sensors, uh, you have your received signals, lots of data there, Lots of you know things you can do it. So normally, if we take it in, say, on a plane, we we would collect it, we would ship it down through a communication link, it go into a large processing center, we'd work on it, turn that data into um, information, and as I said before, actionable knowledge, maybe intelligence, and then send that back up and create sort of a feedback loop there. But you might imagine that that's that's pretty difficult to do because you have a lot of data coming in. That is so pervasive, and there's so many sensors out there. There's only great sensors, so really what do you do with all that data you collect and, and one of the things we've seen is you know so much data that's collected it never gets anything done with it just because you can't process it so we're very much interested in you know how you can process that data right on platform right at the edge as we call it so instead of having to ship it down uh, have those latency delays time delays and shipping it down and then just the bandwidth that it takes to ship it down it is is very challenging so if we can process the data right at the edge 
create information, create knowledge at the edge. It really speeds up the process and it allows us to get at the heart of the problem much quicker. So, but to, so to do that, you need very small, very powerful computers. And it's again, getting at that size, weight and power that we're really looking to optimize so that we can do it. So we, we look at things like hybrid computing and options for that. And in fact, um, I'll start out with neuromorphic computing. And neuromorphic computing is something that we started looking at um, back in about 2009 or so. And this was partnership with DARPA under their Synapse program. And what neuromorphic computing is, is it really um, takes what the human brain does. The human brain is a perfect supercomputer, if you will, in the architecture that it provides. When you think about how our brain operates and things we can do with our brain. So we can obviously train it. We remember things. We recall things. We forget things. If part of our brain is injured. It rewires itself. And in fact, obviously, things move very quickly. We're great at recognizing things. So how do you take the architecture of the human brain and put that into a computer? So we certainly don't want to make and recreate the human brain, but just take kind of the architecture, the kind of that basic principle of biology and make a um, processing architecture out of it. So that's what neuromorphic computing does, kind of kind of in a nutshell, and it's very different than how um, computer architectures presently operate. So we started investigating that. We worked with DARPA, we worked with IBM, we became an early partner with IBM in their True North chip, which was one of the first, was the first neuromorphic chip that was out there that was commercialized. In fact, we were the first DOD lab to take it outside of IBM and start using it. And it's just continued to grow. Uh, we ended up building supercomputers out of it. And in fact, you know, we've done some great demonstrations of how we could use neuromorphic computing tied in with traditional computing tied in with things like uh, general purpose graphical processing units, GP, GPUs, and, and really get at that hybrid processing power so that you could do things like not only crunch on large amounts of data, but perform machine learning algorithms on that data and allow you to do things that you know we weren't able to do before that you really needed say, a human to do that now we can, in fact, get you know a computer to do. And certainly not going to replace a human operator, but we can enhance and make the best use of it. And by that, I kind of mean, um, you know, there may be a, a, an object that's of interest to us, say a car on a highway or a tank, on, you know, hidden somewhere, and your sensor comes in, your algorithms pick out that that's a tank. Well, okay, you know, that could be of interest, and we might want to zoom in on that and just really focus in on that. So computer can tell us that, and then we could go look at it a little closer. So that, that's where we're going with it. So neuromorphic is one of those technologies. We're, we're also looking at, you know, nanotechnology and, and talked about the neuromorphic computing. Right now, the um, work we're doing out there is based on traditional CMOS technology, but just architected a different way. But we're also looking at things like memory resistors, other types of technologies that are out there that make the architecture more like the human brain in terms of being able to develop uh, neurons and synapses really acting kind of like an analog type switch, if you will. And we've been doing that for many years now, work that's gone on across AFRL, not just in the information director, but other directorates such as um, sensors director, materials directorate, space vehicles, kind of, kind of bringing a team together and then working with um, partners in the fabrication. Yeah, we've actually built a lot of these devices and are 
pushing well. In fact, it's been a long-standing um, partnership. Again, talking about the great capabilities in New York, I talked about AIM Photonics at SUNY Polytechnic Institute, but they also have an amazing capability and fabrication out there. It's, a, it's over a $20 billion investment. So we leverage that. We have a person on site, Dr. Joe Van Nostren, who's been there working many years and helped uh, make this technology a reality. And the other technology that we're really excited about and interested in is quantum computing. And it's really harnessing bits. To me, that's kind of the ultimate step. And that's going down to the very basic building blocks of nature. You get electrons, protons, photons, things, things like that, and using the properties that then govern uh, those basic building blocks using quantum mechanics. And the world at that scale operates much differently than it operates in, in the world we're seeing right now working at. So being able to harness and use quantum mechanics to make computers is something I think that's just going to be ultimate when we get there. So we've had very focused effort on that. In fact, we've become real leaders within the DOD. And in fact, AFRL has been recognized not only what we do in quantum computing, but other parts of quantum as well, what we call quantum information science. So there's the computing piece. There's also the communications piece. There's a timing piece. Uh, in terms of clocks, and then there's a sensors piece. So bringing all those together is, is really what our quantum program is. But um, on the quantum computing side, we don't actually build the, the quantum computers in Rome uh, or within the Air Force, but there's so much investment out there in industry. So places like Google, IBM, Intel, Rigetti, INQ, there's, uh, Honeywell, there's just such a huge push in the commercial world to make quantum computers. Uh, that we're, we do is we leverage those computers and those prototypes that are out there. They're right now they're called uh, NISC computers, N-I-S-Q, and that stands for um, Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum Computers. And they're on the order of just what we call qubits, few qubits, uh, quantum bits. But what we're doing is we're through the cloud, tapping into those computers. We have an amazing partnership with IBM that's been going on a few years now, where we look at how we can take Air Force problem sets, things that are of interest to the Air Force, run them in algorithms on a quantum computer, and what types of results would they return to us? Because the thing about quantum computers and how they operate is so different than traditional computers. So it takes a whole different mindset, a whole different way of programming, a whole different way of thinking about things. They'll use quantum computers. So when I talk about you know really revolutionizing what we do, it's a hard problem because there's not only be able to build a quantum computer because it has to operate in a lot of cases, very, very near absolute zero temperatures, but also being able to program it and, and operate it is so challenging. So it's something we're taking a very long-term view at. Uh, as I said, you know, it's part of our quantum strategy net to actually go out and build the architecture, but work with other partners out there that are building quantum computers. Yeah, quantum is, uh, I'd say, more than a buzzword right now. I know it's keeping us busy with, with events and even just just the, the pace of this technology and adoption. I mean, my understanding about quantum computing, I mean, it's it's the, the speed and the security of the information that you're processing. Is that the real benefit, you know, why we're moving towards qu more quantum? There, there's many benefits to it, but certainly, yes, things that we're interested in the Air Force are, of course, being able to protect and secure data, have tamper-evident, tamper-proof communication systems. So things like quantum entanglement, we, we certainly believe will help us to get there. And that's one of the very unique properties of quantum that, that get us, you know, could could take us to, to that level. And then, in fact, yeah, the other main property of quantum is superposition, 
you know, I, I won't go into too many technical details here, but that really allows us to operate on many states at once, if you will. Traditional computing, we think of ones and zeros, you know, either on or off, kind of a, a one or a zero, as, as we call it, with bits. Quantum is basically all states at once. So it allows you to take very large problems that may take a supercomputer years to, to come up with a solution. Quantum computers theoretically could do it much, much quicker and really we call it kind of an exponential speed up, if you will. We're not there yet. We're a long ways away from it, but certainly worthy of, of investigating. It's great that you know, we're in such a good position within the Air Force to what we're doing in quantum. You mentioned um, it's more than a buzzword. In fact, one of my side jobs as a deputy director is to coordinate the quantum research across all of KFRL. So work with six of our nine technical directorates that have programs going on in quantum all the way from Air Force Office of Scientific Research, work on foundational problems, uh, Dr. Grace Metcalf there. There are other directorates which work on those four areas of quantum uh, that I just briefly mentioned before, timing, sensing, communications, and computing. So we have a great team across AFRL, and I'm so honored to lead it. And as you said, we got, we've had a lot of events in the past. We have more events uh, coming up, not too far down line. In fact, in a couple weeks, though, is, is our next big event, which we're calling the uh, Million Dollar International Quantum U Tech Accelerator, where we're, we've solicited papers from across the world, from leading universities who have interest in quantum and looking at, you know, how that could be applied to uh, Air Force problems down the line. But really just seeing, you know, what maybe new things that are out there that we haven't thought about or haven't looked at before in terms of, of partnerships. So we received, in fact, 243 white papers from 29 countries, different countries. Uh, we went through a down-select process. And then, in fact, at the event, which is going to happen uh, one through first through the 3rd of September, uh, virtual event, of course, the top 36 of those papers, the um, university professors will be what we call pitch them and they'll present their ideas to panels of judges. And coming out of that, we expect to award about 18 or so of those pitches to um, select them. And then they'll be eligible for a grant from the Air Force Office of Scientific Research, one-year grants. And those winners will receive a $75,000 grant to, to further look at those ideas. And, you know, if successful in that first year, you know, there's a good chance that it could turn into something more long term. So something pretty unique. Again, innovation. I think that's what we're all about in Rome. It's what Air Force Research Lab is all about. And um, we take great pride in Rome to kind of the different spin we put on things. And certainly this event is, is one of them. And I should note, too, um, this ties in really well with um, the opening of, speaking of innovation, of our Innovare Advancement Center. So we have what's a great partnership between the information director in Rome, uh, New York State, the county we sit in, which is Oneida County, City of Rome, and the SUNY system to uh, start this center. And it's off campus, so it's just outside the, the proper location of the information director. It's outside our security perimeter, but it's a um, brand new 40,000 square foot facility in a renovated space that was part of Griffiths Air Force Base before. That's really going to look at foundational research and, and bringing in new partners for us. So we have a great team at AFRL, but we do our best work by partnering with others, of course. So going after the best minds that are out there, whether it's in industry, academia, uh, small businesses, or even internationally. So you know, creating mechanisms to be able to work and effectively partner 
with those folks and, and create these new partnerships is what Innovare is all about. And I know it's a, it's a pretty unique name. It actually has Latin roots stemming from innovation, but we think it's perfect. And having those Latin roots and, and being in Rome, New York, we think it's just an absolutely perfect name and great. It's a three-floor center. It will be opening up very soon. It, uh, I think, is really going to push on, you know, those foundational technologies and specifically things that we're going to be looking at, you know, cut across that whole C4I and cyber area. But at the foundational level, things like quantum computing, quantum networking, artificial intelligence, machine learning, cyber technologies, and unmanned aerial systems are really the, the things that are going to be um, looked at and worked in partnership. So if folks are interested in learning more about it, there's a great website that's set up. So it's innovare.org and you can learn more about it and really how you can partner with us. We really look forward to uh, kicking out the center and this event is going to be one way in which, which we're doing it. It's very exciting to have the Open Innovation Campus as part of AFRL's ecosystem. And, and we, we've kept you for a while now, so I would be remiss if I didn't get to talk and ask you about my favorite technology out of the Information Directorate, which is probably ATAC, because I just get to hear all the cool, amazing stuff that ATAC does. Could you tell us what ATAC even means? Sure, I'd, I'd love to. So ATAC is a system that really runs on cell phone, based on cell phone technology, cell phone platforms, and it's situational awareness software. It's an app that um, provides blue force tracking, so friendly force tracking, and it provides all sorts of different capabilities, Air Force to DOD. And in fact, it's transitioned to um, different civilian uses. So many cases we can go into, but the fact that it's on your cell phone, makes it easy. It really goes after what we call digitizing the Air Force or, or the digital Air Force. But there's a talk about, you know, being able to, uh, to, to know where you are. So you can really think of it as folks are, of course, very familiar with map technology on their cell phones and GPS tracking. But what this does is it allows you to know not only, of course, where you are, but other people that you would consider friendly forces where they're located as well. So you can think of special operations, where you need to know exactly where all your people are relative to one another. You can think about, you know, when you hear some noise or something in the distance, is that friendly person or is it a foe? Is it, a, is it an enemy? So bringing all those technologies together are, are just what it does. Like I said, it sits on your cell phone. We, we've used it all over the place within the Air Force. Many, many users, many licenses that are out there. It actually has civilian uses as well. We can think about things like hurricane relief that it's been used in. When, unfortunately, only there have been hurricanes out there. We've sent our folks down as part of uh, relief efforts, and it's been able to help to, to rescue people, to know where, where we have rescuers. And if there's someone out there that needs help, we can go help the person, find the person, bring them back in into safety. Been used presidential inaugurations, coordinating security forces, people visits, things like that, all sorts of uses that one might imagine. ATAC gets used at. And just, you know, some of the stats are just staggering. We have close to 100 um, licenses that are out there right now with small business, you know, other users. The number of users continues to grow. We're well over 100,000 users. There's over 20 unique plugins or apps that go along with ATAC. And one of the things, too, is, you know, it's not just the Air Force that uses it within the federal government. There's over 40 federal agencies that, that use it. There's six um, programs of record that use it as well. So it's just been so pervasive. So the civilian version of it as well, you know, I talked about how it can be used different ways. So 
I think each and every day, folks are just thinking of different ways to use ATAC. It's always surprising when you hear it mentioned and how it just kind of pops up. But civilian version that's available. In fact, you can go on tacmaps.com, T-A-K-M-A-P-S. And it has that civilian version that, you know, people can be able to download. There's been over 50,000 downloads so far. And we see this, you know, just is continuing to grow and just, you know, people taking it, running with it. And ultimately, you know, it then allows us to make the product better as well. So just been, again, a tribute to the innovation uh, that we do in Rome, thinking creatively and um, coming up with such unique solutions. And I think that's what we're all about in Rome and the information directorate. Absolutely. And I think that's why I like ATAC so much. It's Android team awareness kit, but I get to hear and help amplify stories about, you know, the U.S. Coast Guard using it to to save some ice, you know, 46 ice fishermen that, you know, broke off a chunk of ice, just stuff like that every day, let alone, I know that there's real world combat zone applications. I probably don't get to hear about those stories, but knowing that it's helping our war fighters and then it's already transitioning into this other things that I, as a civilian, you know, help keep me safe. Or if I was in the middle of a hurricane and you have first responders trying to provide aid, know what that dynamic environment is. Obviously trees and buildings across roads and power lines down, just to have that communication to help keep teams safe and then help others is, is really amazing. That's what, that's one of my favorites from just like a heartwarming, hey, scientists, engineers solving the world's problems. It's really cool. Yeah, and it's so neat when our folks get called in or get get a call for, you know, maybe a unique situation, unique rescue, unique application that's out there. And you can fact, you know, think about just law enforcement agencies using it as well. There was a situation or as a prison break a few years back, pretty high profile and just different law enforcement agencies came in and, you know, not always knowing who's who and where they are, but you put that application in their phones. And then in fact, they know that when they hear people around and knowing who it is that, that you know, that might be a, a state trooper or sheriff versus the actual prisoner. And that just helped in the search and just amazing and so many great stories out there terms of search and rescue that we could spend hours on talking about. So it just warms our hearts at the lab scene. You know, there's so many applications of it and being used uh, throughout the world now, literally. And that just goes to show how far reaching uh, Rome's technologies can go. Again, from helping save people during a crisis or helping track people down or keep people safe during events. It's amazing to think that's one part of uh, the Rome narrative, which we've covered a lot today. So uh, one thing we'd love to ask our viewers as we kind of round things out, um, is there any other pieces of technology, whether it be from Rome or from when you were going through a lot of your uh, stages of learning through university that really inspired you uh, to really uh, help in your engineering career or specific researchers that you loved? You know, I talked about the photonics technology and now moving into advanced computing and, and quantum technology. I, I think I've been so fortunate to continue to be a, be a lifelong learner. But I think you know, it always comes back to the people that inspire you and get you excited about uh, the work you do. And, and I've been blessed to be around so many great leaders, not only technology leaders, but just great people leaders uh, within AFRL. And I can think, you know, I, I can talk all day about this, but really my current boss, if you will, Colonel Tim Lawrence, he has just a great story, fascinating story. But he, he inspires me every day and just a great person not only work for or work with, but to be around. Then I think back to um, someone like Ray Ertz. He really inspired me. Ray was the first director of the information directorate. He was a civilian. And in fact, Ray was the one who hired me and convinced me to uh, stay in Rome, to have a career in Rome. And uh, I'll be forever thankful for that. And what Ray did 
I talked about the base shutting down in 1995. Ray was the really the person, the top civilian who led that transition, was able to make it a reality and show that the information director could stand on its own and it could not only stand on its own, but be stronger than ever. And that growth that we've seen and, and all this funding that we receive, all these technologies, Ray was the, the visionary behind that. And you know, back to us getting into cyber technology, and continuing to grow the C4I area and all these different technologies, it really it's the credit to Ray and his vision that he brought and the inspiration that he brought. That is so inspiring and what a note to end things on. So thank you so much for meeting with us today and really giving our viewers an idea of not only what Rome does, but how they're changing the world. Uh, thanks for having me. This is, this is great. And uh, folks ever want to learn more or visit us, just uh, give us a shout. Yeah, we're going to get some of that tomato pie next time we're there. Absolutely. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Sounds good. Can't, can't wait. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.